This is Abnormal Entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen of the internet. This is Steve's house. Mr. Stevie Wonder. Mr. Stevie Wonder. Mr. Stevie Wonder. It's the year of living Stevie. Mr. Stevie Wonder. Mr. Stevie Wonder. Hey everyone and welcome to the Year of Living Stevie. I'm your host Daryl Bean. Today we got a really exciting episode featuring Hammond Organ Whiz Jim Alfredson and I'm, that's not an exaggeration when you hear him play in a little bit you're going to see that he is a wizard on that thing. It's pretty intense. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, real glad that you're here with us today. Uh, episode number six. It's kind of cool that uh, we've had so many episodes and so many cool things and so much more to look forward to as well. Uh, before we get into the interview with Jim Alfredson, I wanted to uh, to try something to kind of experimenting with some different, uh, different segments. And I thought it might be kind of fun to talk a little bit about something I call hidden Stevie. Of course, Stevie Wonder has a uh, long, kind of a very, very deep discography. Uh, the albums in the 70s, of course, are uh, are legendary, um, but he's got a lot of work from the 80s and 90s and up into the, to the 2000s as well, and then work before that as well. So there's certainly enough recorded output to keep you busy with Stevie Wonder. But Stevie also has a habit of showing up on some of his friends' albums. I know that was when I was a, a youngster uh, just starting out. As a musician, and I was in my first like real band, my my pipe dream was that we'd become famous enough that we could have Stevie Wonder play drums on one of our songs. Um, so Stevie will show up very frequently on other people's albums. So that may be kind of fun to highlight some of those uh, some of those appearances. So for today's uh, hidden Stevie, I uh, chose a track from Elton John's album "Songs from the West Coast," which is a super great record if you're a uh, Elton John fan or just a fan of songwriting and great pop music in general uh songs from the west coast is a sleeper it's a really really great record and stevie appears on this song called dark diamond and here's a little uh, taste of that Hey, just from that little bit, you can clearly hear uh, that Stevie playing the clavinet on that track. And it's a super funky uh, song that uh, really, really, you know, Stevie brings a lot to the table on. So it's it's really, really great. The, the thing that I learned from this track, um, if you listen to the whole song, you know, go look it up on YouTube or, or stream it or go buy it or something. Um, one thing I noticed is that the, the clavinet would do these like little bend things and i learned about this piece of equipment called a castle bar that usually fits to a clavinet now if you're not familiar with what a clavinet uh the honor company who makes uh all kinds of different instruments everything from kazoos to harmonicas to keyboards uh honor had made this instrument um that was supposed to basically mimic the sound of a harpsichord so it's got strings on the inside and it's got pickups kind of like an electric guitar and it's the clavinet and there's several different models of it stevie's probably best known for playing the 
clavinet C, whereas the most popular model is the D6 clavinet. Um, but it's just got this really, really unique uh, character to it. But the thing is, is that when you play a clavinet, um, you get a note. There's no way to really bend or alter the pitch on the instrument. You just you press the key and you get the note, and that's how it goes. So um, Stevie's clavinet in this song is fitted with this basically kind of like on a guitar, a whammy bar, or, or, uh, or um, which is a device that lets you bend the strings in real time while you're playing the instrument. Um, you hear it all the time, like in, in songs like, uh, well, not songs, but just like hear it in like Van Halen. Uh, Eddie Van Halen was a guitar player that, that really kind of popularized the use of the, of the whammy bar. Um, and you hear it in all different kinds of, of music, but it's this real distinct character uh, sort of a sound. And it took forever. Like I was trying to figure out how is he bending the pitch on these? Is it like a, an illusion? Am I not hearing it right? What's the deal? And I, after a little bit of research, uh, thank you, Internet, I found out about the castle bar, which is basically a whammy bar that fits onto a Honor clavinet. So that's how Stevie got all those cool little bends and stuff like that. Um, Stevie also plays a totally killer harmonica solo. If uh, you're a, a, a student of improvisation and you're trying to find things to um, to listen to and to um, and to transcribe, as as a lot of a lot of people do when they're learning how to do solos, uh, this is a really really great solo because it's just a, a study in developing a melodic idea in this really short span of time. It's got all kind of cool little flavor in there. So why don't we check out that solo real quick? Dang, that's tasty. Tell you what. Um, so th it's a great song, and the whole album is really spectacular. It's Songs from the West Coast um, by Elton John featuring the song Dark Diamond, which has our friend Stevie Wonder on the clavinet and the harmonica. All right, well, let's get into it. My guest on the show today is the amazing and wonderful Jim Alfredson. Uh, Jim is a Lansing, Michigan-based keyboardist, um, but has a uh, international profile for writing for Keyboard Magazine and his performances with various artists, uh, as well as his uh, recent viral video where he took Wolfpack's Corey Wong and laid down some super funky organ on top of it that got almost 6,000 views and counting on YouTube at the moment. Uh, Jim is also a founding member of the band Organism. Uh, which kind of takes the organ trio format, the uh, the famous organ trio in jazz, and kind of expands on it and extends the boundaries of what you can do on that. He's also a uh, progressive rock keyboardist and has a project called Theo, T-H-E-O, that's done some really, really amazing stuff and got a start uh, in the band Root Doctor, which is pretty well known around the state of Michigan. Jim and I had a really, really great talk about the state of the art of keyboards and Stevie Wonder and music and about his upbringing. So I'm really looking forward to bringing that to you. So without any further ado, here is Jim Alfredson. 
All right, so uh, today on the podcast, our guest is Jim Alfredson. How you doing, Jim? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me over here in your uh, the the keyboard heaven dungeon down here. It's pretty great. Keyboard I, I like dungeon. I looking like around here, you know, as a keyboardist myself, going, "Ooh, I wish I had that." <laughs> um, so, um, so why don't you tell people a little bit in case they're unfamiliar with uh, with your career and the things that you do, like some of the uh, projects that you're working on right now? Sure. Um, I'm probably best known as a Hammond organist. Um, I've led a trio called Organissimo since 2000, and we've done six records and toured the world, uh, mostly the States and Canada, but over to Europe and Israel, actually. Mm. Um, the band uh, just released a new CD called Be Threedles, which is a tribute to the Fab Four. I was listening to that on the way over here, actually. Uh, cool. I was kind of digging that. So. Yeah, it's our interpretation of, of some classic Beatles songs. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's done pretty well. It uh, hit number five on National Jazz Radio and got a really nice review in Jazz Times Magazine, which we're very proud of. So that's doing well. Um, I also have a band called Jim Alfredson's Dirty Fingers, which is uh, my side project for doing stuff that doesn't necessarily fit into the Organissimo band. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Organissimo, I guess, uh, you know, style. Like more uh, of it, organisma would be more of like a traditional, you know, organ trio. So the Dirty Fingers, what 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 kind of what style of music would that? Come Actually, it's kind of opposite. The organisma we tend to like try to push things a little bit, so we oh, okay. use like synthesizers and and you know try to do take different different types of music and put them into a jazz context, but then also mm-hmm. do kind of like some fusiony stuff. And so it's not necessarily a traditional organ trio, whereas the Dirty Fingers is more traditional. Oh, okay. Doing like '60s, you know, soul jazz and stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. And then uh, my other personal project is called Theo, and that's a uh, uh, progressive rock project. So kind of inspired by my love of '70s English progressive rock, like Genesis and Yes and King Crimson and mm-hmm. Floyd and all that kind of stuff. So. Right on. So, and in addition to all that, is if that wasn't enough to keep you busy, you also have a pretty busy schedule as a sideman um, with other artists. Like, for example, this upcoming weekend, uh, you're going to Ottawa, mm-hmm. right, to play with Thornetta Davis. Yep. Um, who are some other artists that you've uh, you've played alongside of? I've been playing a lot with local Detroit act Laura Rain and the Caesars. Mm-hmm. Um, I play a lot with Sean Dobbins, a great jazz drummer out of Detroit. Um, a lot with Jeff Schaub, a great jazz drummer here in Lansing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Cooper, the vibraphonist, originally from Chicago, now on the west side of Michigan. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of a gun for hire. Like you know, if I'm available and and the gig sounds cool, I'll do it. <laughs> very, very cool, very cool. On your uh, and and your sideman dudes, what, like what would be your favorite? Like what what artist or what gig is kind of your favorite as a sideman? Um, you know, people at, used to ask me that a lot because in the 2000s I was in the local band Root Doctor. Mm-hmm. Or about ten years, and at the time I was I was doing organismo as well. So people would ask me, "Well, what's your favorite style of music to play, organismo or root doctor?" And I said, "Man, it doesn't matter. If the music's happening and the people are cool, and the gig is fun, I'm I'm happy. It doesn't. I don't I don't pick favorites. You know, you don't have a, a seed. No, for it, so I, to speak. I just like yeah. I just like to play music, and if the music's good, then I'll play it. You know. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, somebody had asked me today, like, what my favorite uh, episode of this podcast was, and they're yeah. all so different. And I like them all for such different reasons. You know, I'm like, well, I love Dennis Coffee because I learned all this stuff about right. Motown. But I also I just loved... played with him. Actually, that was a, that was an amazing gig. Oh, he's yeah, he, he's something, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, it's really, really amazing. So yeah, I learned a ton from him. 
And then I, you know, this reggae band leaving lifted because the drummer was this encyclopedia of reggae Mm -hmm. and I wasn't expecting that, you know, I just like learned all this extra stuff and the songs were great. So it's like everyone is so different that it's hard to evaluate them as one being better than the other, I guess. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I play, I also play with a band out of New York called Big Apple Blues. Mm -hmm. Um, which has a great guitar player in it named Zach Zunas, who I played with in the Janova Magnus band for almost five years, which uh, Janova is a singer based out of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So from 2000 till the end of 2014, I was in that band touring the world and the States and Canada and stuff. And that was that was a lot of fun. And Zach is a great guitar player, and it's really nice to have the opportunity to play with him again in a different situation. Awesome. How often do you get to do that? Uh, probably, I would say, two or three times a year. Um, we haven't done anything this year yet. Last year we went to Belgium, we went to Hong Kong, and it seems like we were in Vegas, I think, early in the year. So like three gigs last year, but this year we haven't done anything yet because the leader of the band has his, uh, his other thing going on and he's mm-hmm. pretty busy, but it looks like we're going back to Belgium at the end of the year. So. Very cool. Yeah, That's awesome. Well, so to back it up a little bit, where are you from? I'm from Mason, Michigan. Okay, so yes. right here in the state, right, actually not right far here. from where we're at in Lansing right yeah, now, exactly. actually. Mason is the county seat of Ingham County. Very small little farming community, and I grew up out in the middle of the cornfields, <laughs> about four miles outside of town, uh, in a fairly big family. We had I had uh, six siblings, five sisters and a brother, and my two parents all in a two-bedroom house out in the country. So, wow. All right. And when did music start becoming a thing for you? It was always there. My father was a guitar player. Mm-hmm. Um, he also played a bit of keys, and he loved the Hammond organ, so he had a Hammond when I was a kid, a B3. And uh, always had instruments around the house. My my eldest sister played drums. My other sister played saxophone. I think one of them played bass for a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, flute, guitar, bassoon. <laughs> uh, everybody, you know, there are instruments everywhere. But uh, I seem to be the only one that kind of took it um, as a career. I guess. Sure. So g- growing up in a, in a place like Mason, which actually it sounds a lot like I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, and growing up in a place like that, it was hard to find places to play or people to play with. Um, given that you had a large family, I, that's not my situation, Mm. but because you had a large family and everybody played things, was there almost like a, like a partridge family ish, not the bus and the (laughs) thing, but, but did, is that where you guys kind of first started playing together? Uh, A little bit. I, I definitely, my sister played drums. Uh, we had a short lived band with some of her friends. Mm -hmm. Um, and then. She's the one that got got me into the progressive rock thing, mm-hmm. and uh, I started writing my own material in that style uh, pretty early on. And then she moved on to other things. She's also a very good artist, so she kind of focused more on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she turned me on to a lot of different music. And then, of course, my father's record collection was very eclectic. Um, and getting to the theme of your podcast, that's that's where I first uh, became exposed to Stevie. As a child of the '80s, I only knew Stevie Wonder. As you know, I just called to say I love you. Right. Yeah, yeah. Cheese, right? Mm-hmm. And I had no idea about his earlier career. And when I started digging through my dad's record collection, I found uh, Fulfilling His First Finale, Intervisions, Talking Book, Songs in the Key of Life, you know, the big classic records. And actually, it turned out that those were my mom's records. Oh, how about that? And not my dad's. I'm like, dang, my mom was hip. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I think the first one I put on was Talking Book, and it just completely blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Had no idea that 
anything like that even existed. That that was the same guy, yeah. the, the I just called to say I love you guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was just amazing. So, yeah, I mean, growing up in the country, uh, not too many people around. I uh, didn't have a lot of friends. Um, kind of a shy kid. Mm-hmm. And I spent most of my time under headphones listening to records or playing. I mean, that's just kind of what I did. Yeah, yeah. When you were growing up, because because of that too that i'd imagine it would be difficult to find places well maybe not to play keyboards but i mean like there's like church environments and things like that where typically people that have been coming up as a keyboardist that's where they kind of start a little bit i guess but uh did you play any other instruments when you were growing up to, i like- played alto sax in middle school and high school up, mm-hmm. up until my junior year um tried to get my fingers around guitar but it never made much sense to me yeah did play drums for a while once my sister stopped, I, I kind of picked it up and played on my own little recordings and stuff. But uh, Oh, cool. Yeah, I played a little bit of bass guitar. Yeah, but mostly keyboards. I, I was just fascinated by synthesizers and organ and piano and, and all the sounds that you could get from it, you know, and also the, the aspect of recording. I've always been inter- interested in engineering. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. So it sounds like when you were growing up and when you were, like, in your formative sort of, like, teenage years and stuff that – um, your music education was probably more self-directed than say, mm-hmm. like going to, you know, like I was in band and my band director had us do these things. And I saw that and that, you know, like more, more of like a self-directed sort of a journey. In a way. Definitely. I, I share that with my father. My father was definitely an autodidact. He, mm-hmm. he, you know, read voraciously, had his own kooky theories about all sorts of different stuff, <laughs> a lot of which I don't agree with, but I respect the fact that he came up with his own ideas. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but he was just self-motivated, you know, self-employed, kind of a uh, indi- individualistic type of person, and I definitely in- inherited that from him. Um, and when it came to music, yeah, it was just about figuring it out. I mean, yeah. I didn't really ask for help. Sometimes I'd ask my dad for like a, you know, what chord is this or something like that. But for the most part, I just kind of, I just kind of figured it out. Right. So when um, in your in your development, when did it become clear to you that that your pathway was going to be to be a musician as sort of like, this is what I'm going to do for a living. I'm not just going to do it on the weekend or I'm not just going to do it as a hobby. This is what I'm going to do for a living. It was pretty early on, actually. Um, I think when I started making my own songs, which was probably 86, Mm -hmm. so I was like nine, eight or nine, um, is when I kind of realized, hey, you know, I'm, I'm good at this. I can actually probably do this and I you know I tried to be practical when I got to college and I studied electrical engineering at Michigan State and I never graduated because I just wasn't into it I mean I, I love electronics I actually work on electronics as well and fix the organs and work on you know audio gear and stuff like that and I mm-hmm. enjoy it but I didn't enjoy the the rigid atmosphere of college very much like mm-hmm. you know, again I'm kind of like a self-learner so for me to sit in a classroom with 200 other people and learn chemistry, which has nothing to do with what I'm trying to learn. It mm-hmm. wasn't it wasn't my thing, you know what right. I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I didn't do very well in college, and, and plus I was I was in every choir I could get into. I was in the jazz program, the fledgling jazz program at the time, you mm-hmm. know, playing in combos and stuff. And I should have just studied music. And if I had done that, I probably would have gone to a different school. If if I was, you know, that's, yeah. I don't have a lot of. Uh, I tell people this all the time. I'm like, I don't have a lot of regrets in my life at all. Uh, I've kind of lived my life the way I've wanted to, but that's one regret I do have is is when I got to college, I should have just went for it and, you know, not done the the practical thing and just done music. 
Yeah, it's like kind of this nag yeah. that you probably had the whole time you were in college. Like, yeah. oh, I should be doing this. I should and, be doing. I should. I should have studied composition or studied pipe organ or studied you know jazz more. Yeah. Formally, you know, but it's fine. Everything worked out the way it should have. But. Sure, you know, and it's and being that you're kind of a self learner anyway, like anything that you could have learned through that environment, you would be able to learn on your own. Yeah. Anyway, and it's it's hard to say how that might have sure. swayed you. Like where? Well, would the you thing about you? music to me is is. In my personal experience, I've always learned more on the bandstand than I than I learned in any classroom, anyways. Mm-hmm. You know, and getting back to say like Root Doctor, I joined that band in in uh, 1999, and they never those guys never rehearsed. You know, um, it was just like, okay, you're filling in for this the keyboard player, and he's in Japan right now, and here you go. <laughs> like, what key is this? I don't know. <laughs> Figure it out. Figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> I played with a bunch of bands around Lansing that were like that. They know that the guys had been playing together for decades, and I was this you know fresh faced kid. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, here we go. Yeah, and I learned so much about you know, uh, it, it trained my ear to to pick up intervals better than any ear training class could have. You know, yeah, and how to fit in with a singer and how to fit in with another rhythm player and horns and all that kind of stuff. It was it was a great. Uh, classroom really that's it that's very true i think about my own experience as a saxophonist and you know very early in my career that was kind of the same situation where i'd like be filling in or i just jump on stage with bands and i had to be able to learn to you know how to find keys really quick and what's listen for the progression and just be able to fall in to what everybody else was doing and that's something that's really paid off over the years so like the ability to just kind of like blend in and fold in yep. with what the band's doing yep. um, really helps out a lot, you know? So that is, it's definitely true. I think the, the bandstand is really where most stuff really, you know, the things that really matter and the things that really make you a, a good player are where they really kind of solidify to yeah. a certain extent. So, yeah. For, for the type of music I do, I think that's definitely true. I mean, if you're obviously a classical player, then you need that formal education. Sure. As a jazz player, blues, uh, R&B, even rock and roll and, and country. I mean, one of the first bands I was in when I was 16 was a country western band in Mason. <laughs> we are playing like beer tents and stuff. And my, yeah, yeah. and my father was so supportive, you know, hauling the organ around with me and driving me to these gigs and stuff. And, and again, that band, we actually did rehearse, but not enough. Mm-hmm. And they would pull out songs on the gig that we didn't rehearse, and I had never heard them before in my life. And it's just like, okay, I'll just follow the bass player. Here you know? we go. <laughs> yeah. I think it's going to go to the five next. Right, All right exactly. here we go. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. the thing. Most of Western music and most pop music and the same changes over and over again, so it's not not like you know rocket science or anything so. that's true yeah that's very very true it's like you know you can pretty much expect what's going to happen next yeah. and it's like well it can either go here 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 so let's right. just kind of listen and see what happens yeah. oh there we go um so yeah that's that's definitely true um w- when you i have a, just kind of a note in my my question notes here it just says prog versus blues jazz and soul so i'm trying to figure out the best way to kind of <laughs> put that into a into a question so it's it's probably not even a versus sort of a thing it's different things i mean you know it's like for example i you know someone might like to eat hot dogs and also go out for steak or sushi or something sure. like that like there's this whole broad palette of things um so i'm, I'm sure that's probably how you approach it i um, maybe I don't know. I don't want to speak for you, but is that is that kind of the way you would think of it? Is that your your work as a progressive musician is kind of like an a 
a corollary to your work with as a jazz blues and soul artist like they're just sort of like different worlds that that are fun to occupy from time to time or no actually that's all the same to me mm-hmm. um for for example if you if you listen to the first organismo record that we did way back in 2003 the very first track is called meet me at 11 okay and it's it's in 11 8 time basically it's a measure of five measure of six back oh yeah forth. and i i got that idea from listening to progressive rock but it's in a jazz context. Ah. And we have we have a bunch of tunes on that record that are like that that are in odd time signatures. And I've always been fascinated with odd time signatures. And I've always been fascinated with long form compositions. And I think jazz is uh, is is open to both. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for for me, the the only difference between say progressive rock and jazz is that progressive rock doesn't have as much blues in it that jazz does. Right. At least the jazz that I like mm-hmm. has a lot of blues in it. Now there were. Obviously, progressive rock musicians that that started as blues bands like Jethro Tull started mm-hmm. as just a straight up blues band and then got into um, more like folk progressive rock, I guess. And yes, definitely has some some soul and blues and stuff in their playing. Mm-hmm. Genesis maybe not so much, um, but to me, it's just it's not necessarily even a different world. It's just a different, I guess, a different flavor. Like you said, it's it's not it's all food. It's all music, mm-hmm. but it's it's just a different. What do you what are you hungry for right now? I mean. Uh, for, uh, at 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 the moment right now, I've been doubling really heavy into the French turn of the century organ school, classical organ. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, uh, mm-hmm. Vidor and and Vierne and um, uh, Cesar Franck and all these guys and and that stuff. I, I you know I only discovered it maybe a year ago. I had no idea that people wrote that kind of stuff for pipe organ. Mm-hmm. And it's blowing my mind, but at the same time, there's parts of it and melodies in there and harmonies in there that I'm like, these are jazz harmonies. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, using the upper partial yeah, chords. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. and then uh, there's definitely, obviously, uh, progressive rock stuff in there, too, because those guys stole from classical music like nobody's business. Well, right, you yeah. know. <laughs> um, so it's all it's all interrelated to me. It's, a, it's all... You know, in the same basket, it's just, yeah. What do you, what are you in the mood for? And I try to, I try to combine everything into kind of a, um, you know, into a whole. Especially jazz. Again, with organismo, we try to be not necessarily uh, a standard traditional organ trio doing, you know, soul jazz all the time. Mm-hmm. We definitely do that, and we love it. But I want to put other things in there: odd time signatures, weird changes, extended. Uh, forms that aren't just about soloing all the time, you know. Right, yeah, like on the b uh album, I, I was trying to think, I think it's, um, it's A Hard Day's Night or something. There, there's a couple of songs that have really, really interesting treatments mm-hmm. because you would expect it to go this way, right. you know, and it, it kind of takes this whole different turn. Some of the songs, like, uh, that's how I would expect if an organ trio played yeah. a Beatles tune, that's what it would sound yep. like. And then there were other ones where it was just like, uh, I think And I Love Her was, yeah. you know, there were some really interesting chord choices yep. and yep. stuff that were that, that I really like. went, ah, yeah, that's <laughs> cool. I like that. You know? Yeah, we try to strike that balance. I mean, we, we definitely, you know, Can't Buy Me Love on that record is a straight up shuffle. Yeah. And um, that's how they would have done it in the 60s or something, you know. But then something like uh, Taxman, we put that in seven, made it like more modern and funky, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And then, and then, uh, and I love her. We reharmonized quite a bit of that. 
it's just you know it's it's a balance between I don't I never want things to sound pretentious and I don't want them to sound like I'm trying too hard. Yeah. So it's a balance between being slick and being honest. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Where did the, where did the idea that the the inspiration to do a Beatles um like not soul jazz cuz it's obviously other things in that but where did the inspiration for that record come from? It just came from having a conversation with the guy as we were driving back up from uh I think Tupelo, Mississippi. We did a festival down there. And, you know, passing the time on the drive, and, and we were just listening to our favorite Beatles songs, you know, one after another, like, oh, what's your favorite? Okay, let's put that on. What's your mm-hmm. favorite? And in listening to these tunes, we both kind of, or all three of us actually came to the conclusion together. We're like, man, we should do some of these songs. Yeah. They're so ripe for reinterpretation. There's so much uh, that you could do with them harmonically. And, of course, the melody. I mean, McCartney and Lennon were masters of right of melody. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're just... They're just ready for somebody to do a project like this and not and not just do straight up covers. That's what that's one thing I didn't want to do is just do like instrumental versions of the tunes. You know, mm-hmm. same arrangements and same chords and all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah it would be interesting. You know, one of the things I was thinking of as I was driving here and listening to the record is it would be interesting to get like Ringo and Paul's response. Like, yeah, I feel like how they would like. I mean, it's I know it's like it's kind of like you know people always talk about. Well, what if Stevie hears your show and you're right. like, yeah, right, that's ever gonna happen. Yeah, but you, like, you never know. But that's the thing. <laughs> I mean, I do know uh, a couple. I have like I'm twice removed from members of Paul's band, so you don't you don't you never know. Yeah, it yeah, that's true. Well, I remember a story I read one time with Jason Faulkner, uh, musician from L.A. Um, he had done two of these bedtime for the Beatles albums. Oh yeah. And know you know, they're just like, you know, he threw them out on iTunes. I don't think, I don't even know if you can buy them on CD or not, but like he put them out there and they were just sort of these things that he did. They be like, well, I like the melodies and I thought it'd be interesting to interpret it that way. So yeah. I, I put out, didn't expect anything out of it. And he was in the studio either with like Beck or air or something. Yeah. And he passed Paul in the hallway and like they pass each other. And then Paul turns around and he's like, Bedtime with the Beatles, right on, man! And he gives him like the the McCartney thumbs up yeah, that he yeah. always gives, and and Faulkner was like, "Oh my god!" Like I can't believe that just happened. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it'd be it'd be pretty interesting, you know, yeah. like if if something like that happened, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and and same to you for the Stevie thing. And we've thought about the guitarist and I and Oregon Smoke thought about doing a Stevie project for a while too, because uh, he's got so many tunes, and a lot of tunes have not been. Uh, a lot of people have done his tunes, but not. There's a lot of tunes they haven't done. Yeah, that's definitely true. I, that's one thing that sort of a, I didn't expect out of this podcast mm. was that it's exposed me to all these tunes that I'd never heard before. Like yeah. you know, I thought I I pretty much knew most of his his songs, you know, but especially like that like '80s '90s block yep. Yep. where I just kind of went, oh, I you know, it's whatever it's Kurt's Vile Era, whatever, you know, yeah. like. Um, and even then there's tunes, you know, like, like, uh, moon blue and, you know, all these great tunes. And I'm like, wow, I missed all this stuff. (laughs) And people are like bringing them out as they're like, well, I think I'm going to do this song. What? What is that? You know, (laughs) to go look it up. And so that's been a a nice side thing for me, I guess, is that I'm like my vocabulary of Stevie tunes is expanding. Yeah. You know, I think the thing that's amazing about him is that you just know that there's probably he's probably got a vault with like a thousand tunes in it that nobody's even ever heard. Mm-hmm. Like he's the he's the the silent prince. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in a way, you know? I mean, I, I I bet that he probably writes a hundred tunes a year, mm-hmm. and they're just sitting there, and you know, for whatever reason, he just sits on them. Yeah. You no, know? and there probably some there's probably some 
incredible songs in there. Yeah, I wonder, like, from those, especially, like, the 70s records, yeah. you know, when they were just, you know, he was in the studio for two years yeah. for Songs of the Key of Life. Yeah. Like, what's sitting from that session the vault, that they yeah. didn't use, you know? Because there's probably some good stuff. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. So, um, Let's talk Hammond organ a little bit because that's obviously been a big part of your voice. Mm -hmm. um, I might be I, I might be mistaken, but but have you worked with the Hammond company too? Like as sort of a I I don't know like have with a sponsorship or like that you've kind of consulted with with Hammond? Yeah, or? well they they endorse me as an artist. Mm -hmm. um, I've been with them since two thousand seven, mm -hmm. about ten years now, and uh, they've used me as kind of a consultant as well on some of the new products. You know. Get me down to Chicago and try them out and tell them what's wrong, what's right. And uh, I've done trade shows for them, you know, the NAM shows and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a good relationship and they're a great company, a very small company. Most people don't realize how small the company is. Um, and they do, you know, they make some great stuff. I, I, I use the digital Hammonds on the road. Mm -hmm. Um, if I can't get, you know, a B3 uh, uh, as backline, and even sometimes when I do get B3s as backlines, they're, they're so poorly maintained that I wind up using my digital one anyway, so. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Hammond, Hammond, uh, they've been very supportive of me, um, and I think the relationship is, is pretty mutually beneficial, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's nice to have the support yeah. of a company that, you know, like, be like, I don't know, being Steely Dan and having a relationship with the Rhodes, right. you know, company or something like that. You know, something that's just so tied in yep. with their sound so tightly. Um, I The one thing I was thinking about, and it's it's one of those things where I'm not 100% sure how to, how to phrase a question, so it kind of stick with me a little bit. But um, when you think of the Hammond organ, it's like sort of this iconic unchanging instrument in a mm -hmm. way like the like like a violin almost in a way where it's it's this thing you know draw bars and um you know the uh the motor and the leslie middle, speaker leslie speaker and yeah. what have you like it's sort of like just sort of this iconic thing mm -hmm. and yet it's also something that is kind of like a well that that technology keeps coming back to you know back all the way into the 80s when you had like the korg CX model, yep. like sort of, you know, the, trying to simulate it. And so it'd be interesting to get your insights on how technology as it's evolved over the like the last, you know, 10 years or 15 years or whatever, how that's sort of impacted and and blended with an instrument like the Hammond organ that's sort of this iconic sort of a thing. Sure. Well, the Hammond was the first uh, electric organ. It's actually electromechanical in the way that it functions. Um, but it was originally designed to emulate a pipe organ. Mm. And it does that quite poorly, actually. But <laughs> um, the good news is that it does it in a way that's unique, and it became its own instrument because of that. It's kind of like the Rhodes. I mean, the Rhodes was made by Harold Rhodes to be a field piano in the Army so mm -hmm. that they didn't have to haul around an acoustic piano, which is heavy and goes out of tune all the time and is not very roadworthy. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's... It comes from wanting to emulate a piano, but it doesn't sound like a piano. I mean, it's it doesn't, it doesn't. It's got the same attack and decay that a piano does, but mm -hmm. the timbre is completely different. Right. Likewise, the Hammond organ is designed to emulate a pipe organ, and it has some of the same features and characteristics as a pipe organ, but it doesn't sound like a pipe organ. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it sounds like itself. And then, of course, when you pair it with the spinning speaker, the Leslie, um, it doesn't sound anything like a pipe organ at that point. It's mm -hmm. its own thing. Um, and yeah, it's taken a long time to get to the point where the digital equivalents are playable. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because the limitations that they had in the 1930s when they designed the thing actually give it so much of its character that if you don't take those limitations and design them into a digital system which has no limitations and is also perfect, mm -hmm. if you don't take some of those imperfections and put them into it, then it doesn't sound right. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the biggest, the biggest hurdle for even the new Hammond company to get over is to, to is to realize that we don't want it to sound perfect. We want it to sound funky. Yeah. We want it to have imperfections and quirks and and weirdness about it. Right. You, like the real ones. Yeah, that's true because you know if you play like you could put four Rhodes pianos in a room and they'd all sound a little different. Yeah. Or you could put four Hammond organs and they could all be even the same model and the same cabinet in the same year. And they'd sound a little different yes. depending on how they were maintained or where yep. they were or all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, that character, that element of of character. Yeah. Right. And that's mm -hmm. one thing that, um, getting on kind of a sidetrack, that's one thing that bugs me about a lot of modern recordings is you you can tell that most modern recordings are not using a real piano. I'm talking like pop and stuff, mm -hmm. you know. They're not using a real piano. They're using a plug-in, and everybody uses the same plug-in, and it all sounds the same. Whereas mm -hmm. if you listen to older recordings before digital pianos, you know, they had to mic up a piano and, and pianos sound different. Mm -hmm. The mics make the piano sound different. The room makes the piano sound different. So even if the piano wasn't perfect, like on some of these jazz recordings, the older jazz recordings, you know, the piano might be slightly out of tune here and there and the unison might be out or something. Mm -hmm. But that gives it so much character and nowadays it's just boring. Yeah. Like everything sounds the same. It's That's true. I, I know that I've struggled with that with piano sounds a lot. Yeah. It's just specifically that like it's hard to find a piano sound that you want to play like yeah. they all just sort of like <clears throat> you don't feel like you're playing a piano you feel like you're playing as like the sound of a piano yeah. on a recording right. instead and that's where the Hammond sound was for a long time like you said you had the stuff in the 80s and and to be fair in the 80s the organ kind of died there wasn't a lot of people mm -hmm. using it at the time um, it started to come back in the 90s with Joy Francesco, and then companies started to make organ clones like Roland had a couple uh, Nord came around Hammond started doing it again. Uh, Korg reissued the CX3 mm -hmm. as a digital thing, um, and now there's there's quite a few companies making Hammond style organs out there, and everybody's kind of trying to outdo each other in terms of of what I was talking about before the imperfections, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so we've come a long way, and it's actually a good time to be a, a Hammond organ player because you know there's such good options out there for something lighter weight that you don't have to haul around the 400 pound behemoth anymore mm -hmm. to get a similar sound. Now everything of course is a compromise and it's never going to be 100% like the real thing. Mm -hmm. And when you when you do get to play the real thing and it's been properly maintained and it sounds great and the Leslie is powerful and kicking and everything, it's there's no better sound than that. Right. Um, but those are few and far between. Uh, if you Consider that the last B3 that ran on, uh, that came off the production line came off in like 74, 75. Mm -hmm. So the latest, you know, the youngest Hammond out there is, is uh, the youngest B3 out there is 40 years old. Right. Um, that's that's kind of where we are. I mean, there's there's some great sounding organs, but they, they require a lot of work mm -hmm. and maintenance to get them up to snuff. 
And then if they're on the road, then you have to, you know, make sure they're roadworthy and carry spare parts with you and stuff right. like that. So it's it, kind of like roads and whirlies and stuff like yeah. that, where like, you know, the, I mean, they started remaking the roads um, in the 90s, I think, right? Late, late maybe late early 2000s. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but most people, if they're carrying one, carry like a, you know, a, a Mark One or a Mark Two, yeah. and they're 40 years old or, yeah. or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I've been redoing a lot of roads lately for people. Mm. Um, and I've used mine a couple of times for live gigs, but man, it's, yeah, you, you have to really, be dedicated to do that. It's so <laughs> heavy and it's, you know, goes out of tune if you bang it around a lot. And, mm-hmm. and to be honest, the road sounds in most modern keyboards are really good. So Yeah, it's kind of true. Like I, I had a Mark I yeah. and decided to sell it because the road sound in main stage is pretty good. You yeah. know, it's like it really, it didn't, it wasn't so much different that it made carrying around a hundred and yeah. You know, sixty pound keyboard or whatever it is, um, make it worthwhile, right. really. So yeah. yeah, for live stuff, I think I think it, you know the modern stuff sounds great. Now for recording purposes, I have done a record with like a digital Hammond and it came out great. I actually fooled some people with it that thought it was the real thing. Really, and the reason I used it is because it had MIDI capabilities and I was layering stuff with synthesizers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, I used I used the real deal on recordings and likewise Rhodes. I used the real deal on Orlator. You know, I try to use real instruments when I can, mm-hmm. um, piano if I can get away with it, just because again it gives it it gives it that character that you know makes it sound different than everything else that's out there. Sure, yeah, that individual yeah. sort of a characteristic yeah. too. So, but yeah, getting back to the Hammond Company, um, they're making some great products. Um, I'm proud to be endorsed by them. I'm proud to use their stuff on the road, and uh, they've been very supportive. It's a, it's a good company. So and and since you you said you were at Nam, uh, yeah. representing Hammond, have you ever run into Stevie at Nam? Because I know like every yeah, he came to the Hammond booth. Uh, I think that was two years ago when mm-hmm. I was there, and you know he's also got this enormous entourage following sure. him around, and he's got a handler that that is close by all the time, and and I didn't really want to bug him and you know. Try, yeah. to, try to weasel my way up there, but I was, you know, six feet away from him watching him play. Like, and, oh. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, it, I, I hope to meet him in person someday. Um, again, I have a couple connections to him mm-hmm. on the professional side. Like, for instance, his uh, trumpet player that tours with him, Dwight Adams, is on my Dirty Fingers record. So. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, and and I've run into Dwight a couple times at at Nam, and and uh, actually he was playing with Stevie there the last time I was there. So. Mm-hmm. You know, one of these days, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that would be pretty fun. Yeah. Cause just to shake his hand, thank him for the music, and sure, tell yeah, him what an inspiration he's been. You know, because yeah, what do you say? I mean, I, there's times where I've thought about like, boy, I'd really like to meet, you know, whoever Tom Petty or Andy Partridge or yeah. any number of like heroes that I have. But then I'm like, what would I even say right. <laughs> to that person? I mean, re- like, all except thank you, basically, yeah. and that's it. I mean, like, like we're gonna have a deep conversation, right? Yeah. About music, <laughs> like you know. I did a, a recording project with his bassist uh, Nathan Watts mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. It never came out, but uh, you know Nathan's from Lansing, so we were talking about Lansing, and he's still got family here, and he was a super nice guy. And I'm like, man, it'd be cool to like if they're ever in Michigan again, just to call Nathan and be like, hey, bro, what's <laughs> up? You got any backstage passes? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like I've been, um, I've been trying to reach out to Greg Fillingaines. Yeah, because I thought he'd be really interesting to talk to. Yeah, sure. And you know, because he was in Stevie's band. You should for... talk to. Uh, I'm good friends with Ronnie Foster. 
Okay, who's Ronnie? Ronnie played on Songs in the Key of Life on at least one track. He played organ. He's an organist. Oh, cool. Um, played with George Benson for years and years and years. And oh, that'd be Harvey awesome. Harvey Mason and stuff. But he knows Stevie. Stevie and he are really good friends. Awesome. Yeah, that'd be fun. I'd yeah. love to talk to somebody I'll, like that. I'll, I'll put you in touch with him. Very He's cool. A really cool guy. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, actually, that's kind of kind of a good. We're sort of working back into Stevie yeah. a little bit. Um, and I mean, I guess the first first and most obvious question is like, what would you consider? And we kind of talked about it a little bit when you discovered the '70s records yeah. in your parents' record collection. Um, when did Stevie really start to become? And a musical influence on you? I think probably late high school. Yeah. Because that's when I discovered the records. I had, I had, I was obsessed with progressive rock starting in my teens up until probably 16 or 17 because uh, at that point I had heard everything that I could hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, you know, of course, this is before the internet. So you couldn't, you know, some of the more ex- obscure bands I couldn't even find recordings of. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I had heard, you know, all the all the mainstays and listened to the records a billion times, and I was like, okay, what's next? You know, so mm-hmm. um, digging through my dad's collection, that I, I got turned on to Jimmy Smith first and foremost, and that totally blew my mind and got me started in the jazz organ thing. And then I also heard Stevie, and uh, especially like songs in the key of life. That record was like incredible. I couldn't yeah. I couldn't believe it. You know, and to me, the, again, the, talking about musical worlds and stuff, it doesn't. That record is not that far removed from the progressive rock stuff. It's quite true, yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, it's very experimental. There's lots of really cool synthesizer sounds on it, mm-hmm. uh, recording techniques, and 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 of course, you know, the double album type of thing where you know, um, it's that record completely opened up a whole different world for me. Like, mm-hmm. and then of course, I found out that he played you know, 90% of the instruments on and, and drums and maybe not on that record, but on his other records, he played a lot of drums and, right. yeah, yeah. you know, and arranged all this stuff. And, and I fell in love with his, his voice and his ability to improvise with his voice mm-hmm. and, you know, that, that melodic sense of his that translates into his solos and stuff too. And mm-hmm. his harmonica playing is, I don't like a lot of harmonica players at all. It's not my favorite instrument. Yeah, uh, but I could listen to him play harmonica all day, right? And you can pi- <laughs> and you can pick him out right away. Oh, like yeah. you hear him play something, you're like, "That's Stevie," you yeah, know. Like exactly. he, he's got this voice on that instrument that yep. you can't deny, basically. Yep. So yeah. So then I dug through his back catalog when I got into college and and picked up like music from my mind and and some of the really early Motown stuff and um. I think in terms of like an influence on me, I think he influenced me in terms of wanting to. Wanting to write melodies, I never considered myself a very good melodic writer um, mm-hmm. when I was in high school and college and stuff. And I really worked hard on that in the, in the intervening years to to like studying melodies and how they work and and what makes a good melody and intervals and that kind of stuff. And and I listened to a lot of his music and took it apart. And um, I think that's probably the biggest takeaway from it is is his sense of melodicism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both, and it's a, and it's a natural melodicism. You know, it's like it's not forced. I, again, I uh, I don't like music that where it sounds like you know somebody's trying too hard to be slick or something. And that I don't get that from his stuff at all. It's all exactly what it should be. You know what I mean? Yeah, it comes very very organically. Yeah. You know, like and and his melodic sense as a singer 
is very, very similar to his melodic sense as a harmonica player. Yep. You know, the things he sings and the things he plays are very similar. Yep. It's, it's like Louis Armstrong, you exactly. know, in a lot of yeah. ways, you know, where just it's that that's his voice. That's a good comparison. Yeah. He is kind of like a modern Louis Armstrong in, mm. in many ways, you know. Yeah. Kind of a child star and kind of redefined, you know, a whole genre of music. Yeah. Yeah, for, for all y'all listeners out there that are thinking Louis Armstrong and you're like, what the what a wonderful girl right. world guy's like look look a little earlier. Look a little deeper. He's a badass. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, it's really it's that's pretty interesting. I and you know, I wondered like if if his sort of pushing technologically, because they, it was one of the things that maybe Stevie doesn't get as much credit as he should for the way that he was really pushing technology even into the 80s and 90s when maybe the music might have not as has been quite as i don't know creatively challenging mm-hmm. as some of the stuff in the 70s but he was still you know pushing technology with Raymond Kurzweil mm-hmm. and all that stuff and then even even up to now you know like he showed up on the Grammys playing with Daft Punk and he's got that thing, that, and it, that, the harpeggi or harpeggi, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it was like I remember seeing it on TV and going, "What is that? Yeah. What the hell is that thing?" And like had to go look it up. And I think that's why he enjoys the Nam show so much is that he, he it keeps him abreast of what's going on in the industry. Mm-hmm. Like he spent a, the booth right across from us that year was the Roger Lynn booth, and Roger Lynn has this Lynn pad thing, which is kind of like a matrixy type of interface for. Mm-hmm. Playing, you know, you can play notes on it, or you can use it as a controller, or whatever. And Stevie spent a lot of time over there messing with that thing, yeah, uh, because it's something new, you know. Yeah, um, or like you know, they have those those new key. Like I use Air Bunnies like quotes to call them keyboards because they're m- like kind of more than keyboards. Like those, they have those like soft oh, the keyboards yeah. where you can the there's like a Z axis yep. as well as that. Yep. And then of course the thing that Jordan Rudis uh, kind of pioneered that that Hacking. I don't remember. Yeah, the hacking continuum, yeah, yeah. Um, and and things like that, and how you know he like stuff like that seems to end up in Stevie's hands. Oh yeah, sure. More often than not, and he ends up using it, and then people go, "What is that thing? What yeah. the hell is he doing?" You know. Well, it's 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 you know getting back to his recording techniques. I think it's it's easy for us in 2017 to forget how difficult it was to make a record mm-hmm. in the 70s, technologically. Yeah. Um, studios were very, very limited in what they could do. I mean, you got multi-track just came out a few years before that. Mm-hmm. The ability to record separate tracks at separate times, you know. Um, in fact, in my studio right here, I have one of the first 16-track two-inch machines, the Scully 116. Mm-hmm. That, uh, Pink Floyd used one on metal, you know, and uh, 16 tracks. I mean, that was huge at the time. Right, yeah. Um, and then they eventually did 24, and then you could link two 24-track machines together and get 48 and that kind of stuff. But even with all those tracks, it was still, you know, people in a room playing music, mm-hmm. you know. And there was no uh, digital editing editing like we have today. You couldn't take like, oh, I bummed that trumpet note, so I'm going to take the note from when I played it again. Right, two yeah. Two measures later and just pop that over there. No, that did, you couldn't do that stuff. You know, splicing <laughs> tape was, was kind of a last resort. You know what I mean? It's it's funny showing people now, like, you know, teenagers and kids in their 20s, kids in their 20s. But anyway, but like showing people that have never experienced tape and sh- like showing them a video or something of somebody splicing, splicing tape yeah. and how like almost, I don't know, like medieval it looks. It is. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing what people were able to do. You listen to like Stevie's records or you listen to like those Yes records where they're doing these 
23 minute long pieces, man. And mm-hmm. there's no, there might be one cut in there where they, or maybe they pieced it together. But I think, I think a lot of that stuff, they just played it. Yeah. They played it down. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there was no studio trickery. There's no auto tune. There's no beat detective. There's no, you know. Yeah. It's, <laughs> the, things changed. I like, I noticed that in the seventies, particularly maybe even in the eighties, but in the seventies, particularly bands, when they would make a new record, they would tour it first yeah, and just kind of like workshop it on the road. Cause I've got, I've got tapes of Pink Floyd doing dark side of the moon, like yep. in 72 and yep. when I like before they went into Abbey road to record it. So they knew how to play it. Yeah. 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 So that they, when they got in the studio, they didn't have to waste time yeah, exactly. trying to figure because it was so expensive to be yeah. in a studio in the first place. Okay. Yeah. No, it's 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 remarkable when you when you listen to some of those old recordings and what they are able to achieve um, with a limited number of tracks and limited technology. Uh, I, I'll never forget my father. You know, he passed away in two thousand eight while we were working on the Groovadelphia record with Organismo, and this is mm-hmm. the one I was using the digital organ with MIDI, you know, layering synthesizer sounds into the organ and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the first organ that I, or first record that I recorded here in my home studio completely, mm-hmm. the whole record, which was a big, big step for me. And uh, I had him over probably only like a month or so before he passed away to listen to what we were doing. And the first thing he said was like, uh, man, this is, this is uh, pretty forward thinking stuff. Are you worried about alienating your fan base? I'm like, what fan base? <laughs> we, don't, we have like... <laughs> thousand people that maybe know who we are so (laughs) no (laughs) i'm not worried about that at all no not really (laughs) and the second thing he said when i showed him like you know what you could do in the computer and the editing and the plugins and the all this and that he was just staring at it with his mouth open he's like this is incredible i said yeah it's pretty amazing what you can do now and he goes he said uh, i'll never forget this he said there's no excuse anymore that's really good. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. There's no excuse anymore. There's no excuse not to create what you want to create mm-hmm. because you have the tools at your fingertips to do it. If you want to produce a movie, if you want to make a you know a book, write a book, or a, or a graphic novel, or uh, obviously photography, or art, or music, or whatever you want to do, mm-hmm. there's no excuse anymore. You have the tools available. You know, he said, if I would have had this when I was your age, he's like, I. I I don't know what I, you know. That's true. I mean, I even think about it because we're roughly about the same age. I'm 43 and you're 40. So, yeah, like I think about the things that you can do for free online. And like, oh, my God, could you imagine if you could have done that, you know, when when we were When I was a kid, man, I was, was, it was a novelty to bring in a paper for school that was printed. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we we had a Commodore 64 with a freaking Okadata. Dot matrix printer. <laughs> and in Mason, like I was one of the few kids that actually was able to print out like a report. Everybody mm-hmm. else was a handwritten. And now you can get online, use Google Docs, type up whatever you want, mm-hmm. email it or make a PDF of it or, you know, print it at Kinko's or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. Could, you could write it on your damn cell phone if you wanted, you know, with That's like a right. Bluetooth keyboard or something, you know. It's totally right. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I just, I always, whenever I, you know, I've talked to students about that. I try and impress that on them. It's like, guys, you have no idea. Like, no idea. Even to even to like do a cassette four track demo yeah. when we were teenagers, that was a was, huge deal. It was expensive. You know, I had people that wanted that hired me to record their bands in high school because I had a four track reel to reel. Uh huh. 
And that was a big deal. Right. Yeah. And yeah, because everything was super expensive. Everything. Bikes were super expensive and cables Every- and stands. And it, and now it's so, like, it's so democratizing yeah. that, like, you can go online and literally, like, you can have a multi-track recorder for free. You can yep. have MIDI sequencing for free. Yep. Everything. It's yep. all for free. And it's pretty amazing. What isn't free is the talent. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, I, and not to be an old curmudgeon or anything, but I think... Uh, well, I was going to say that, that uh, you know, there's a lot of crap out there. But I think that w- that's true of any era. Yeah. Because there's a lot of crap out there. What does give me hope is that, you know, I've done a couple of these jazz camps with some young kids. And there's a lot of kids out there that are players, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, serious players. Now, how many of them are going to turn into the next TV Wonder? Probably not many. You know, how many are going to write songs that are worth a hill of beans i don't know but they can play yeah which we need we need good musicians that can play live and that's for sure yeah Yeah, it's i i often wonder and it's like i i kind of check myself to make sure i'm not wandering into you know get off my lawn right territory but but there's that you know the way that the industry has changed yeah you know as far as the monetization and how hard it is to make any money doing anything yeah. as a musician or as a creative person in general in general yeah that's right um and how that's influencing or not influencing as the case might be for people to to want to go the extra mile and find the new sounds and yeah. do the new things there's always going to be those people mm-hmm. uh, i'm not worried about that and i try to look on the bright side of of the democratization of of creative technology in that if more and more people are creating something and being creative and and expressing themselves and getting this stuff out in a creative way, then that's less people doing it in a destructive way. Well, that's quite true. Yeah, you that's know. very true. So even if even if you're not very good or even if you're, you're an amateur, I think just just do it. Make your write your music, sing your songs. I don't care if it's good or not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Say your truth, basically. Yeah, just do it. Yeah. Because it's better than the alternative. The alternative is to either be a destructive person or to be unhappy because you've got stuff to say and you can't say it Mm -hmm. because you you don't feel worthy or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Don't worry about that crap. Just, just do it. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So speaking of that, well, kind of, I don't know exactly, (laughs) but um, so your songs that we're doing today, let's talk about the the tunes that you're doing. So uh, I thought I would do uh, off of songs of key of life. um, Another star. Uh, We play this one in organismo often. Um, and we, we do kind of like a, kind of a classic soul jazz arrangement of it swinging. Mm-hmm. And then if I can pull it off, I haven't played it in a while. I practiced it a little yesterday. Um, I'd like to do one of his lesser known pieces off the, uh, album he did, uh, um, for the movie, for the secret life of plants, uh, called, uh, uh come back as a flower. Right on. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that tune because I'm I'm admittedly I haven't heard it. I I meant to listen to it before him, but I, I'm kind of glad that I didn't in a mm-hmm. way because it lets me kind of approach it fresh. Yeah, I guess in a way. So um, so that record, Secret or Journey of the Secret Life of Plants, it was yeah. right after Songs in the Key yeah. of Life. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but I know if when I've been talking about Stevie with people before, I I felt like. It was one of those points where, like, you know, Songs of the Key of Life was such an achievement. And it's like you kind of get full of that, what can't I do right, right. energy. And then that leads to Journey of the Secret Life of Plants, which is a great album, but it's it's not, like, 
people don't listen to that one very much because I, it's sort of hard to get into. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's pretty underrated. I think yeah. there's actually some. I mean, not all of it is genius level stuff, but there's some really amazing songs on there. Mm-hmm. Um, admittedly, I haven't listened to it as much as as the other stuff either, but um, I, I do I do think it's. I don't know if it was necessarily I can do anything type of attitude. I think it was more like. I've done this. It was extremely popular. Now I'm going to do something that I want to do. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like I bought my ticket to be able to do the things yeah. that I really, really want to do. Basically, by you know making this huge Super Smash record. Yeah. And he's, he's proved himself. He doesn't have to prove himself anymore. Now he can just kind of do what he wants to do. That's true. And at that point in his career, he that's when he had his own studio because he had yeah. his own studio for Sons of the Key of Life too, didn't he? Did he have Wonderland at that point? Or I think so. I think that was recorded in a bunch of different studios, but I think. Well, I, I I don't know exactly, to be honest. Yeah, I'd have to look into that. Yeah. But I, I, it's somewhere around I know that, that time. The, I know that that record was a was a real challenge to make because he had Motown breathing down his throat to deliver it, and he wanted to spend some more time and make sure things were right and stuff. And then he had to renegotiate his contract with Motown and mm-hmm. ask for some obscene amount of money that Barry Gordy didn't want to give him, but couldn't turn it down because <laughs> it's Stevie. You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it turned out to be a huge hit record. So, yeah. Wow, far out. So, so how about this this tune? Um, is it, you know, what, what's it it's about? It's sung by it? his wife at the time, Sarita. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the lyrics just deal with you know wanting to come back in the next life as a flower rather than a uh, human being with all our trials and tribulations, and mm-hmm. you know, just come back as something simple and beautiful. In <laughs> the song, and the song is simple and beautiful. Simple and beautiful. Yeah. There we go. So. So awesome. Um, well, let's take a listen to Come Back as a Flower. Thank you. 
All right, so uh, second song, uh, another star, which probably pretty familiar to most people, especially if you know uh, songs in the key of life. But but it's not necessarily a, a hit. No, from that album. But it's you know it's of course because it's on that album. I think it ends the album, doesn't it? Doesn't um, it? it's I know it's on the second album or the second record. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's the end because I think it isn't easy, uh, easy going evening or whatever it's called that. That mama's call, wah, 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 oh, wah, yeah, wah, yeah. Wah, uh, is on the very end of the record. But it's, I think it's, it's on close. side four. Yeah, it's, it's pretty close. close to the end. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of the big blowout, like yeah. he's a Mr. Know It All yeah, like, exactly, yep. kind of blowout song, like, yep. he, like he kind of likes to have on his records. Um, what uh, what about that song appealed to you that made you want I just to like it? the melody of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very jazzy, it's very uh, kind of a classic type Tim Pan Alley, American Songbook type of melody and form. The mm-hmm. chords are very, um, you know, lots of two five ones and stuff. So it's it's perfect jazz vehicle. Yeah, I love that. I love the chords in the bridge yeah. of that song. I just really, I like where he goes with it because it isn't what you'd expect necessarily, right. um, but it's a nice counterpoint to the to the rest of the song because the rest of it's minor and then that yep. sort of major, yep, yep. you know, kind of juxtaposition in there too. Um, when you play it with Organismo, like when you do live gigs mm-hmm. and you play that song, do people recognize it immediately or do they, do they know it? Or? I think uh, the... the the older generation does, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And we usually follow it up with another Stevie tune. We usually do like Golden Lady or something. After okay, that, so. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we kind of do our little mini Stevie set. Nice. That's another song in that sort of same, Yeah. I don't know, like genre really, or that same sort of style where it's like, you know, sort of the Tin Pan Alley chords yeah, and yeah. it's beautiful melody yep. and really, you know, cool harmonic Yep. progression in there and stuff. It's pretty cool. I think Intervisions might be it for me Intervisions or Fulfilling His First Finale might I can't decide between those two as my favorite Stevie record. Yeah, for me for a long time it was Talking Book, but I'm I'm kind of becoming more of an Intervisions. Yeah. Intervisions kind of is just genius level stuff from start to finish. It's I mean, amazing. You know, yeah. it's totally amazing that you know, in the record the the songs on that record that they all came from one person and that a lot of them were played by one person. By one person. <laughs> yeah, we were talking in the first podcast about uh, him as a drummer. Yeah. And that's kind of like, that's one of my pipe dreams is that someday, like, I'd be in a band successful enough that we could have Stevie play drums. Yeah, there you go. On a song because <laughs> it's be like, cool. he just has that sound. Yeah. You know, that's kind of interesting. But yeah, it's, it's cool. I love that whole record because it's just like so. I don't know. It's, it's like you said, it's just genius level stuff. Yeah. And he can, he pulls off things that, if anybody else tried what he did, it would fall apart. Yeah. Like they would completely miserably fail at it. And he, he makes it happen. Like that big, long extended break and living for the city yep, yep. Um, that, you know, if anybody else tried to do that, yeah, I think it would come off kind of badly, right, you know, right. pretty much anything else. But um, yeah, it's really, really interesting. Cool. So do you find that another stars are pretty like, fully orchestrated song on songs of the key of life do you find that there's any challenges making that translate to a smaller group uh yeah definitely have to pare it down i mean we we uh i think it helps to put it in a different feel and so we we put it in kind of like a um kunga beat type of you know mm-hmm. that kind of oh, know, gotcha. swing yeah, groove yeah. um to kind of just thin it out a little bit and 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 yeah if we tried to do it like uh, kind of a samba like he was doing it, I think it would 
wouldn't work very well. Yeah, it'd be difficult because there's so many different elements yeah. going on, like the background vocals and the right. horns and all that stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing it. So let's check it out. Thank you. 
So to finish it up, as we do on every episode of the Year of Living Stevie, we, we usually end up with a uh, some sort of message to Stevie just in case he would happen to you know wander upon this podcast and wonder what it's all about. Wonder what it's all about. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like I hate when I pun and I don't really mean it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it and I hate it alternately. I don't know how to how to really react to it, frankly. But um, but uh, if you had a message to uh, to send to Stevie, you'd mention that you know like at the uh, at the Nom show he was there, and it's like you yeah. didn't really want to bug him. If you did get a chance to bug him, or if you, if you weren't such a kind and and you know like polite <laughs> person and just ran up to him, hey buddy, what's up? Like, what would you want Stevie to hear uh, from you? Well, first and foremost, I just thank him for all the music and for being such a, a positive influence in the world, mm. um, and uh, and and an influence on me personally. But then I would I would hope that we could sit down and just talk about music, like how he approaches writing a song. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, whether he starts with a melody first, or chords first, or lyrics first, or an idea first, or whether he sits down specifically to write something. You know, because I do all those things. Sometimes I I, I want to write something very specific, so I'll sit down with the intent mm-hmm. of writing something, or I'll have a lyrical idea, so I'll start with that, or I'll have a melodic idea, so I'll start with that. And I'm just curious, like how he goes about it. You know, he would. He, I I would say almost like you know, I, I know some friends of mine. And I have this like list of people. If you could have dinner, yeah, with like one person, who would it be? And for for years, it was always like Tom Petty. I felt like I would love to sit down to dinner with Tom Petty because I just mm-hmm. feel like he'd have a lot of really like wise things to say. But mm-hmm. I I think you could very easily swap that with Stevie. Like yeah. it would be really great to sit down with Stevie 
and just have a meal and just sort of talk. Yeah, talk about, uh, you know, he and I, I think, are politically aligned, mm-hmm. you know, musically aligned. Um, you know, he's a very religious man. I'm not necessarily religious, but we could talk about spirituality and that kind of stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, but music is the great equalizer. I mean, we music is like a universal language, so I think we could definitely hit it off on that regard. Yeah, yeah, that just, would be sweet. I'd just talk I, about, you know, I'd love to hear some stories about the studio. I talked to Ronnie about it a bit, you know, about him playing on, on uh, I think he played on Summer Soft. Okay. On that record, and we talked a little bit about that experience and how, you know, how it was in the studio with Stevie and, um, you know, just like where the industry is headed in his in his estimation and. I don't know, just, man, there's so much you could talk about with that guy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I know Dennis told some great stories. Dennis Coffey, yeah. when he was here, told some really fun um, studio stories about Stevie, like trying to show Pistol and Uriel how to play a drum part. <laughs> and they couldn't play. And they couldn't do it, so they just had him do it. <laughs> you know, that sort of stuff was a really great story. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would be really interesting to get his read on. You know, growing up, uh, one thing know. I'd be interested to talk to him about is growing up here, you know, because he went to the School for the Blind. Mm-hmm. You know, and how that was, and then and then his his experience in Detroit, and you know, I, I, it's just Saginaw, of course, and yeah, yeah. You know, he's a hometown boy, so yeah, like all yeah. that sort of stuff. That would be pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, Jim, thank you very much for being our guest today. I really appreciate it, and thanks for the songs. I'm sure you know everybody's gonna love uh, listening to that when well, it comes out. Thank you. Appreciate. Oh, it. Um, are there any? Do you have any upcoming shows or any events coming up that you'd like to plug? Um, sure. We're doing uh, uh, kind of a Northern Michigan tour um, the last week of July with Organismo. We're going to be in Pentwater, Baldwin, Reed City, uh, Manistee. Uh, the last week, so just kind of look mm-hmm. up on our website, organismo.org, and you'll see where we are. Um, we're doing the Old Town Jazz Festival in Lansing. Um, it's always awesome. August 4th. Uh, that should be a good show. Uh, what else? Um, I'm touring with Laura Ray and the Caesars in September, kind of like a Midwestern thing, doing some Chicago dates in September with them. Mm-hmm. So it's all it's all on uh, that stuff will be on my website, which is jimalfredson.com. Okay, um, but it's a pretty busy summer. I'm kind of all over the place. So. Right on, and we'll stick those in the show notes. So if people want to look up those two websites, the, yeah, cool. That'll be in the show notes, so they can. And find I'll probably be at, at Nam uh, in January too in Anaheim. So fantastic! Come so to come to the Hammond booth and say hi. If you are, if you happen to be at Nam, come and see uh, Jim at the Hammond booth. You'll have, <laughs> do you, do they have goodies? Do they have like stickers and junk? Oh, I'm sure they will. Yeah. Awesome. That's, I, I kind of like swag. Swag, yeah. It's pretty sweet. So, all right. <laughs> well, once again, thank you very much for being our guest today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Absolutely. All right. That's our show today. Thank you so much to Jim Alfredson. Uh, it was a great pleasure meeting you and hanging out with you in your studio. And those tracks are just magic. Absolutely fantastic. In two weeks, uh, our guests on the show are going to be Elsie Binks, uh, which is a rock band uh, from the Detroit area, fronted by the amazing and wonderful Aaron Accomando. Uh, they're going to do a couple songs for you and talk a little bit about their Stevie connections, which will be a lot of fun. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, if you like 
like to keep up with us, of course, you can follow us online in a number of different places. First and best place probably to go to is either uh, the Abnormal Entertainment website. It's abnormalentertainment.com, just the way you would expect it to be spelled. And you can find our show and various other shows. There's all kinds of cool stuff. There's political shows. There's um, comic books and movies and TV and all kinds of great stuff. So, um, so there's something for pretty much everybody at Abnormal Entertainment. So I would encourage you to go and check that out. Thanks to Kevin and David uh, for uh, hosting the show and getting it out there so that people can hear it. You can also follow us on Facebook. Um, that's where a majority of our updates come from. So uh, if you want to do that, you can go to Facebook and then find Year of Living Stevie. Know the Year of Living Stevie. And you'll find our webpage there. And there's always stuff going up there that you might want to know to keep up. You could also go to Twitter. Um, our handle on Twitter is Living Stevie. So you can check us out there. And if you have anything, you uh, any questions, comments, what have you, um, you can visit on Gmail and send me an email at livingstevie at gmail.com if you would like to buy a stevie is the truth sticker which is super awesome if you check out the facebook page there's a picture or two on there um if you'd like one of those are three dollars sent directly to your door or if you find me in person um they're two dollars if i just hand it over to you they're super awesome you can stick them on your car you can stick them well, wherever you want to stick them. I'm, I'm not telling you how to live your life. That's that's not cool. Um, if you would like one of those, you can either hit the Facebook page and buy one there, or if you would, uh, if if you want, you can Gmail me, uh, and I can get something to you that way as well. Um, so thanks again. Uh, glad that you were here with us, and we'll see you again in two weeks. Take it easy. Stevie is the truth. Mr. Stevie Wonder. Mr. Stevie Wonder. Head to abnormalentertainment.com for all of our podcasts and blogs. Go to cinemaheadcheese.com for our movie reviews and news. Don't forget our YouTube channels, Abnormal Podcast and Cinema Head Cheese. Get us on Twitter, at Abnormal Podcast. And find all of our shows and Abnormal Entertainment on Facebook. You've been listening to the Abnormal Entertainment Network.